Good morning. It's good to be home. It's good to be home. It's always good to come be home, without a doubt. Now, I hear it's been warm since I've been gone. Well, you should have come with me to Bombo because they were wearing sweatshirts. Here's Millie on the last day with her shawl on. It's noon on a Sunday, and they're cold at 70, 75 degrees. Somebody on this trip, however, thought they were there to, I don't know, play football, as in soccer, and get there on a motorcycle. Just saying, he did a lot. Of, I did forbid Boda Bodas in the town because I'm not bringing him back to Katie damaged. So, uh, but out on the out on the row, out in the rural Bumble, this is at Alex Pastor Alex's house, and so I, I I let him. He's an adult. He went on the motorcycle with Alex, and they did fall over in the mud. By the way, he'll tell that story in a sermon someday, I'm sure. But this morning, I thought perhaps we should do a bit of a reset as to where we've been, where we are, and kind of look forward to where God is leading and where we're headed. So if you have your sermon notes, point number one is nine days in Bombo. There's a theme to these titles, nine days in Bombo. Andrew and Danny and I spent nine days in Uganda. On our way out of town on Sunday morning, I did catch this photo of Millie, Alex, or I should do them in order. Millie, Esther, Jeremiah, and Pastor Alex, because I was told I didn't get enough family photos. Isaac, their adopted youngest child, is, was in Kampala. And I forgot to, to remind you that it's a wonderful time to be back in Southern California. Is it not? And I missed last week's Stanford game. Who won? Oh, wait a minute. Okay, I better get back to the topic at hand. <laughs> I'm bad. It's been a long drought. Let me just put it that way. Anyway, so Isaac is in Kampala getting ready for his start of his next term. But I thought maybe I should set the stage for what is a pretty primary focus of ministry around here uh, for those in case you are new to us. In 2007, we were challenged to take a small team to go to Bombo, Uganda, which is about 15 miles 21 kilometers north of the capital of Uganda, which is Kampala. And so eight of us went to explore ministry opportunities, um, to see what we could do. It was an interesting trip, um, but as we were winding up, I asked the question, how could a church in Southern California invest in ministry with you? And the answer was, why don't you run a medical mission for us? Oh, okay. So I came home. Said that to the church, and Dr. Dapo Papuli immediately courted me right back there in the worship center and said, we can do that. I can do that. I do medical missions. And so we started in 2008. We did our first one-week medical clinic uh, in Bombo, Uganda. And um, we did it inside their small worship center, which is the only thing they had at that point. They put up these patient rooms so we could have some privacy. Um, the only way to take a blood pressure was manually, and so I'm not sure Karen's fingers have recovered even yet from a week of manual um, blood pressure machines. We saw that year just around 1,480 patient visits. If they see multiple doctors, every doctor they see, that's a visit, okay?
okay, because that's just the way it is. So um, we had 1,480 of those. We've returned every year. We conducted 12 medical missions since 2008 until a pandemic hit in which it all shut down in 2020. Um, our last year of clinic in 2019, we saw 5,782 patient visits. All in all, in the 12 years, we've seen 68,586 patient visits. Patients have seen a doctor 68,000 times. We've done 391 general surgeries, uh, just small hernias. What else do we do? Small stuff, for us, small stuff, but important for them. Circum oh, circumcisions, yeah. We did a few of those. Um, We've extracted 2,608 teeth because that's the dental care that we can provide. So um, in the last few years, we've averaged just under 6,000 patient visits a year, five days. Um, and so most people do see more than one doctor um, when they come. But in five days of clinic, um, we're, we're busy. It's, it's, a, it's a machine. Um, everything did come and ground to a halt with COVID-19. Uh, and so there were a lot of reasons for this trip this year, but one of the key reasons was we wanted to have some face-to-face -face discussions on should we start a clinic in 2023? Uh, what about the leadership moving forward? How can they help? Uh, we needed to talk to the medical director and determine if they even wanted a clinic and if they thought it was wise to resume uh, next August uh, to see if it was even still a need in the community. It didn't take long before I even had a meeting, before I heard the resounding, yes, they're ready. Uh, in our conversation with Dr. James up at his hospital, about an hour north of Bombo, he has a hospital complex really up there. And his honest assessment was clinics like ours fulfill a huge need and, and a huge gap in the healthcare of the country. So um, he said, yes, we need this clinic back up and running. He says it's necessary for the public health as part of the piece of the pie. And to realize, he said, COVID is survivable, but there are a lot of things that are not. And so it's time for us to begin to focus on that which is not. And so um, they at their hospital have not seen a COVID positive case in three months. So it's pretty much not an issue uh, these days, uh, at least in that part of Uganda. But after a week of nonstop meetings, Someone did two weeks ago stand up in front of the church and say, well, I'll see you next year at Clinic 2023. Who did that? And there was cheers and applause, and so we're, we're, we're sort of committed. I got a message from my team here, though, that, that if they were willing, we were willing. And so um, it's, 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 at this point, it's a go for next year. They strongly desire it. And if we can help their ministry, then we will do that. Um, we met with all the pastors one day of all their churches that they have planted, five of them and their wives, and, and we had a wonderful uh, meeting together. And just, just in passing, one of them said, you know, I've got a lady in my church who came to an early clinic with this goiter, and we got it properly diagnosed. I mean, I don't think they're that hard to diagnose, but what do I know? I'm, someone's going to tell me they're hard to diagnose. Okay. We were able to leave funds. She had the surgery. She is 
wonderful today. She's a key member of their church. She's serving the Lord. She is excited. And it, it's just stories like that I heard throughout the week of the impact of the clinic and its follow-up on, on a very practical level. When you go to visit the church in Bombo these days, they've got a, a restroom complex and there's running, there's running water and soap outside the restrooms, which is like huge. The, the clinics had some impact. The Health Together's had some impact. They're washing their hands. Do you know how much disease we prevent from their just learning to wash their hands? It's amazing. And so there, there's some really good things going on. The church itself is doing well. COVID was very difficult on them. They had two very severe and very long lockdowns. They have put up a, oh, did I, I did all that. They um, put up a temporary roof over their sanctuary. Uh, there it is, it's tin. They say it's a miracle. They, they, people ask them, well, is it raining in Bombo? And they say, what day of the week is it? Well, if it's a Sunday, it doesn't rain in Bombo. God's just protected them. It's only put up rain once because if it rains there, a church is done. <laughs> the t if you've ever sat under a tin roof, uh, in their kind of rain, you won't hear a thing no matter what the projection of the sound system is. And so they have a temporary roof that you've used all their chairs that they own. They have two services. Um, the children's ministry is large. It's growing. Um, I was just very encouraged after meeting with the pastors and, and impressed really with the quality of leadership that they have in each of these churches. Uh, their big project is to build a permanent roof over the worship center, the sanctuary. They've collected about half the funds, so we'll see what they're able to do. Uh, but my, I would say my nine days in Bombo, they were rich, they were challenging, they were informative, and they're, they're setting us up for, for uh, improved ministry with them. So come back home and look to the future. That's nine days in Bombo, 40 days of true religion. Last spring, the elders were discussing where we are as a church family post-COVID. And I heard a lot of the things discussed that I actually heard this last week or two weeks ago when I was in Bombo. Similar issues with people. Um, and, and it's hard for people to get back. And so we've longed for a shared vision and a sense of moving forward together. Some have moved away through the pandemic. Others went elsewhere. Some, maybe they just gave up on church. I don't know. But this fall... I wanted it to be, and the elders really wanted us to all focus on one thing, that we can move forward together. So we've crafted our own 40 days campaign. It's really born out of our backward study of Romans, and it's really a product of our, our journey through Matthew as well, because now the baton of the kingdom is in our hands, and what will we do with it? And Paul has been saying, you know, you need to do a lived theology. So are we living our theology as we should? Because the problem that was among these house churches in Rome, they had their different worldviews, they had their different socioeconomic backgrounds, but they needed to live theology because then they'd, they'd live on purpose and, and life would happen together. And so I wanted to do something that challenged our lived theology. 40 days of true religion, or if you prefer, 40 days of lived theology. It's the same thing. At the heart of this campaign is Micah chapter 6, verse 8. God wanted his people to live their theology from the heart. Not just do stuff, live it. 
But I want to put that, that famous text into its context. If you have your Bibles, turn to Micah. I have pre-turned there so that I don't look like a fool. You can, you, can, you know, it's, uh, what is it? Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos. Oh, I started back too far. Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, then Micah. Okay, so if you find Jonah, it's the next one. Jonah, Micah, then it's Nahum, and you get pretty close to the end. If you have your Bibles, Micah, chapter 6, verse 1. Listen to what the Lord says, the prophet says. God says what? Stand up, plead my case before the mountains. Let the hills hear what you have to say. Shout it for everybody to hear. Hear, you mountains, the Lord's accusation. Listen, you everlasting foundations of the earth, for the Lord has a case against his people. He is, large, he is lodging a charge against Israel. My people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. I brought you up out of Egypt. I redeemed you from the land of slavery. I sent Moses to lead you and also Aaron and Miriam. My people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, plotted and what Balaam, son of Beor, answered. They were going to curse you and I stopped it. Remembered your journey from Shittim to Gilgal. Shittim on one side of the Jordan River, Gilgal on the other. I brought you into this land. I gave it to you that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? What do I do to, to honor you, God? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams? Well, maybe 10,000 rivers of olive oil. Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression? The fruit of my body for the sin of my soul. And then verse 8. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. You got to live your theology. It's not about the sacrifices, it's not about just coming to church. How do we live in this church, in our community, in a world? That's what we want to explore in 40 days of true religion. Are we living in a way that reflects the heart of God? Because true religion is very, very practical. James calls it pure religion. James 1, those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves. <laughs> and their religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Those are not complicated things. They are time-consuming and they're hard. But it's my desire that in these 40 days, which will begin on October the 9th, that this could be a tool that God uses in our lives and in our fellowship to change us and to help us grow in our influence in the community. True religion is not sacrifice. It's not rituals. It's not reading the Bible. It's not just going to church. 
It's not about, as Paul would say in Romans, it's not about following Torah, as the weak would say. True religion is about loving God and then loving other people. And God has given the church the power and the ability to change the world. But that will only happen as we understand really what true religion is all about. What are we doing to act justly? What are we doing to love mercy? How are we walking humbly with our God? Those are the themes we want to explore in 40 Days of True Religion. John Perkins wrote it best when he said, I began to wonder if conservative evangelicals were making the same grave error that the liberals had made, seeking political solutions to moral problems. And so we want to address the problems from a worldview that's biblical, practical, and informed. What are the elements? I'm not promising these are only, I'm going to list four elements. There might be a fifth or a sixth. We'll just see. At this point, there's four. There's going to be seven Sunday morning messages where we explore true, a pure religion. I'm not, we're not just going to see it from the Old Testament. I want you to see it from the New Testament as well. It's across the, the pages of Scripture. It's not just an Old Testament prophetic topic. And so our Sunday school classes on Sunday mornings are all going to take a variation of this theme as well. Second, there's going to be 40 encounters with different portions of Scripture. We picked 40, verse, 40 verses, maybe two verses, I don't know. Bruce put them together. They've written just a really brief, um, what's the word I'm looking for, um, context for them. But I want us to each, for 40 days, beginning um, the 10th of October, wrestle with a biblical concept. Think, all of us thinking about that same text, and we're going to do that for 40 days. There will be, third thing element is there's small groups. This is the time, if you're not in a small group, this is the time to get in one. We're asking our small groups to meet for six weeks. The curriculum's like eight or nine, but, or eight, I, I don't know, whatever it is. It's more than six, but we're only doing it six times every week. And we decided, how, how do we, what are some things we could all do together? And we landed on the topic of hospitality. Because if we're going to live our faith we need to learn, I think again, after the pandemic, some hospitality. It's your neighbors, folks. It's being hospitable to your neighbors, demonstrating hospitality to them. Our community needs community. This community needs community. And so we're going to talk about that. It's, 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 a, it's a great study. The material, you have to be in a small group to get it. So we're not going to, it's not one of the topics on Sunday morning necessarily. And then the fourth thing we're going to do is called 100 Tables. 100 Tables. Boring are, are coming out of this concept. We're going to try to do something we've never done before. We are asking the church to have 100 tables in 40 days. What does that mean? That means if you have a meal with somebody, you take a picture of it, that's a table. So we want 100 of these over the next 40 days. You can be your small group. You could look around on Sunday morning and say, I don't know that person, and, and I'll invite them and a few families. Do a potluck. It's not a, the meal isn't as important, but I want you to do three things at these things. You want to eat, you want to just talk, and then just five minutes pray for one another before you leave. Eat, pray, and talk. Maybe it's your home group, maybe it's not. Maybe you go out to dinner with some folks. 
food sharing prayer. Take a picture of that around the table, and we're going to have this thing, and we're going to put all these pictures on it. The goal is 100 tables in 40 days. Can we? We can do that. But just to begin to, to practice hospitality. I'm sure there's going to be a memory verses, but I don't know yet. I haven't mentioned that to the staff yet, so we'll see. That's 40 days of community, uh, 40 days of um, true religion. That's it. <laughs> it's really important to me. No, it, it is. So um, I've lived theology too. It's true. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to that. I hope it brings us together with a common purpose and direction. And, and I hope we can use those six weeks to focus on that material together and see what God does. Nine days in Bombo, 40 days of true religion. Point number three, one day to celebrate. This morning is a very special day. Finances, if you recall, were looking rather bleak back in June, right? <laughs> we were in the process of, of trying to hire a children's pastor, but... How do you do that when, when we're wrestling with the budget and struggling so, so deeply? So the elders were just honest. We put out some information. We prayed a lot. And because you were willing to join in this vision today, we really do launch a new chapter in the history of our church family. This morning, we officially introduced, she's been around, and we installed Devana DeRay as our new children's pastor. And we welcome Pete. Make sure Pete doesn't sit by himself next week, okay? <laughs> Poor Pete. He's... He's the nice one of the pair, so I'm told. That's what she says all the time. She does. Um, Pete teaches in Pasadena at, um, I can't, where? Frostig, right? It's a, a school for um, children on the autism scale, correct? Or, yeah, so uh, he's up in the administration. He commutes from Amarga Springs to Pasadena every day, so... But, but it's early, and it, it's good. He's happy. So we keep Pete happy. We keep Devana happy. So um, we, uh, we, we want to, at, at the children, I have 20, uh, oh, I, have, I, have, I don't know. At 11.30, the children are coming in, so the service will go to chaos. So I've got to finish the sermon before that. And we have donut holes on the patio with sprinkles because we're going to celebrate today uh, what God is doing. And it, it is a moment to celebrate his goodness, his faithfulness of his people, and the ministry that's in front of us. I'm very excited about what God is going to do. We are not going to be the same a year from now, um, because today we make a statement that Peninsula invests in children, invests in families, and we're really looking forward to seeing what Devana does among us. Which leaves me with only one point left in the sermon. Unfortunately for you, it's the longest of the points but I will try to, to move through. Two Sundays to finish Romans. You, maybe you were hoping we were done. No. We're going to wrap up our series in, in two Sundays, not counting today, uh, and we're going to spend them in Romans 8. So Andrew preached from Romans 8 a couple, like a long time ago. His dad did it again. So we're all a little confused about where we are in Romans 8, including me. So my job is to bring some clarity to the text and to wrap up this study. If you recall, Romans 5 through 8 is really the solution to the problems we've seen in the book of Romans, which is the weak and the strong, and the weak say, you got to do Torah, you got to get circumcised, you got to follow all this stuff. And the strong are like, nah, Jesus is enough. And Paul, being a Jew, you kind of expect him to go with the weak, but he doesn't. He sides with the strong. 
And he says, we don't need all that. Jesus is enough. It's enough for the spirit and the word to, to guide our lives. That's all you need. It's all grace. It's all spirit. And before I left, we explored Romans 7, which describes that struggle of trying to do the law. Ah, we can't do it. That which I would not, that do I do. And it's that struggle, and we all understand that struggle of just trying to do an obedience-based faith. What, what, what our problem is, is we, we set ourselves up in the morning, we're going to do this and this and this, and I'm not going to do this and this and this. And we go through the day, you know, we can't even do the first thing on our list. And we're halfway, then we skip number two, and uh, maybe we'll try it number three, these things I wanted to do. And we say, God, help me. I'm not going to lose my temper. And by 9 a.m., it's gone. Lord, help me with my critical spirit. And by 10.30 in the morning, we're slicing and dicing people. Lord, help me not to gossip. By the time we get to 1.30, man, we have really, you know, told some juicy stuff. There's a struggle to the Christian life. How do I live now? How does the Holy Spirit, what's his role in my life? How can the weak and the strong, how do we really live together as we should? Somebody said it's the difference between being in a, in a car and riding on an elevated train. And a car runs on the principle of storage. You fill it up with gas and, and you when it gets low, you put more gas in it, and then when you run it, and then you put more gas in it. And you're constantly running and stopping and running and stopping. An elevated train runs on the principle of contact. You got two rails on the outside and this electrified third rail in the middle. And what keeps it going? Contact with the middle rail. And as long as the train stays in contact with that third rail, it'll go and go and go. You see, too many people think that walking with the Holy Spirit is like riding in a car. You get filled up with the Spirit, you run down, then you got to get filled up again, and you're up and you're down, and you're up and you're down. That's not the Christian life of the New Testament. And the New Testament says we've got the presence of the Spirit always with us. He's always here. And what's our job? Stay in contact with Him. Romans 8, we discover how to have a lived theology. And one of the keys in the passage, the paragraph we'll look at this morning, is we've got a new identity. We're new people. Pick up the flow of thought in, in Romans 8, verse 14. Paul says, you or I have a new identity. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought, you, brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we're God's children, then we're heirs, heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. He uses two phrases there to talk about us. He talks about us as sons of God, and he talks about us as God's children. So, I mean, yes, they're, they're the same, but there's also a slight difference. The child of God, he's speaking of the intimate relationship that we can have. That, that intimate relationship that cries out, Abba, Daddy. We can speak to God the same way a child speaks to his or her father. And he calls us a son of God. 
the official status within the family. We have the official right to be a son of God. That's our new identity. We're a son of God, no longer a son of Satan. We're now a son of God. We're not in the flesh. Now we're in the spirit. With that comes five privileges, and we need to hit these really fast. Personal guidance. We get guidance from the Spirit. Verse 14, those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God to be led by the Spirit. Very personal term. He leads us. We depend on him for guidance. Second privilege we have is freedom from fear. Verse 15, the Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. You're not in slavery. You're not in bondage. You're free. Third, we have the right to call God Father. Last half of verse 15, rather the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. By, and by him we cry, Abba, Father, Daddy. You whisper his name in the darkness, he hears you. Dads know their children's voices. They can hear them in a crowded room. And the same is true with our Heavenly Father. He will hear the faintest cry of his children. Fourth privilege, we have inward assurance. Verse 16, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we're God's children. It's the peace that passes understanding. He gives us that inward assurance. And fifth, we are an heir to God's family. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. We understand what heir means in a human relationship and in human terms. My children are my heirs so they can get all my stuff. We're heirs of God. We will inherit that which Christ will inherit. And he wants the riches of heaven to go to his family. And that's us. Five privileges come out of this identity. But there's also an obligation that comes out with it as well. I have one great obligation, verse 12. Therefore, brothers, we have an obligation. But it is not to the sinful nature to live according to it. For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. He says you've got two obligations here. I owe nothing to the flesh. We have an obligation, but it's not to the sinful nature to live according to it. We don't live and owe the flesh anything. We're no longer in the flesh. We're in the spirit. The flesh once controlled us, but now we're free. There's a choice. Second, he says, I owe everything to the spirit. Verse 13. But if by the spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Verse 13 could actually be the most important single verse on the spiritual life in the New Testament. Why? Because in verse 13, there's a beautiful balance. There's a God's part, if by the Spirit. And there's our part, you put to death. There's the work of the Spirit, and there's our work. Spiritual growth comes when we do our part and the Holy Spirit does his part. Because you see, true spirituality is neither entirely passive, let go and let God, nor is it entirely um, active. I got to do my part. If I'm doing it, I got to I, I, I. 
And this verse, it balances this moment-by-moment dependence on the Spirit with a tough-minded attitude against the flesh. Is the spiritual life dependent upon us, or is it dependent upon God? The answer is yes. I cannot do it without God, and God will not do it without me. Which brings us back to car versus elevated train. Storage versus contact. And the Christian life seems to operate on this contact principle. And the train will move forward as long as it stays in contact with that third rail. Your spiritual life will move forward as long as you stay in contact with the Holy Spirit. Are you keeping in contact with the Holy Spirit? Day by day, hour by hour, moment by moment, are you saying no to the flesh that you may stay in contact with the Spirit? There's only two ways to live, in the flesh or in the Spirit. There isn't a third rail. (laughs) There's no third choice. And living by the Spirit is not automatic. You must make a decision. You must choose to stay in contact with the power of the Spirit because the flesh has its desires for you. We feed the flesh and wonder why it won't stop haunting us. We must choose to live by the power of the Spirit. We have the power to say no, and we need to honestly determine how flesh-free our lifestyle really should be. Because if we give the flesh an inch, it'll claw for more. When we have the Spirit also desiring for us, and they're moving us in opposite directions, they both want to control our lives. Who casts the vote? You cast the deciding vote. How have you been voting this week? Say yes to the Spirit. Say no to the flesh. It is as simple and as profound as that. You don't have to live in the flesh. You can live in the Spirit. It's a choice you make. If the weak and the strong want to celebrate unity, If we want to, as a church family, celebrate unity, we choose the Spirit and we say no to the flesh. Let's pray. Father, thank you this morning for your goodness and grace. We've been around the world in the past and in the future this morning, but it comes down to the simple question of with what shall we be in contact with? Are we really willing to say no to the flesh and say yes to the Spirit? Because your kingdom is simple. We need to serve. We need to love. And I pray that these next weeks will will revolutionize us as a church family. As we consider the implications of true religion, of pure religion, of lived theology in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.